1. Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. And those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Also Joshua chapter 4 verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. This is God's word. Spirit of the living God, we pray this morning that you would use your word faithfully. Father, we also pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would have to say. Plead this of you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the nerve-wracking, horrifying, uncomfortable, yet great aspects of going through a book of the Bible together, like we're doing here, is that we can't pick and choose. All right? I can't pick what I preach, all right? And you can't choose what you have to sit through and listen to. 
this morning, but God chooses for us instead, even though you and I enter into a mutual understanding when we read something uh, that we're going to talk about this morning, that being uh, maybe countdown to singing worship later, but make eye contact with me when I look in your direction, right? And I will do my little dance up here like a trained monkey, right? Uh, And try to soften the blow where possible. Unless, that is, we both sincerely, sincerely asked for the Spirit of the living God to use His Word and open our hearts to receive it. That's what we've done this morning. We just prayed this. And there are multiple reasons why I personally, uh, in my own just mind, would not have chosen this passage. And I'll tell you why. Because one, I cannot help that this morning's message will be largely self-referential. Uh, This passage is about a leader. It's focusing on a leader and God's people. And uh, God has called me to be the lead pastor of Sunrise Community Church. So i got to talk about me, which can seem very self-serving, especially as we discuss how to figure out if God is with a leader. Now, I say this, but with, with the aside that we also send out missionaries from here constantly, men and women who go from here to the four corners of the earth and will choose leaders to follow and will themselves be leaders. So there is a kind of preparation in this, including the fact that God might also call you to lead here and soon. In fact, I might ask you to lead. A community group leader might ask you to lead. One of our uh, ministry team leaders might ask you to lead. So it's good preparation to talk about this subject. But back to my problems with it. If we were merely just talking about this subject, it would seem at best, superficially irrelevant, because legitimate leadership seems increasingly irrelevant, doesn't it? At worst, it would seem offensive to our sort of postmodern sensibilities. Authority we've experienced and been taught must not be trusted. But here in Joshua 3, that's what we have going on. God rests authority upon a man so that all his people might see and join with him as he leads them into this promised land we've been talking about. The miracle is pretty impressive, and we'll get to that. But the key verse that gives us the reason for the miracle is verse 7. Look at that with me if you would. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. He says he's going to exalt Joshua, and indeed, he says he's going to begin today, and that's just where he begins, because he goes on, Joshua 4.14, which Janine read for us, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They stood in awe of him as they stood in awe of Moses. He did so all the days of his life. His people need a sign that they can and should join with this person that Yahweh is with. Because it's a human being. Human beings are weak, they make mistakes, they're prone to pride. Leaders are prone to a big ego and arrogance and all kinds of... So I do think the most natural way for us to apply this passage is acknowledging that we also need a sign. What is the sign that God is with a leader and that they are worth joining? That's 
So I think the question that this passage puts before us this morning, what's a sign that God's with a leader and they're worth joining? But because we live in the times that we do, before we get to that question, we must first discuss if leadership and authority even matter. So we're going to talk about that in that order. First of all, I want to make the claim that God-given leadership matters. It does matter to Jesus in the New Testament and in God's church. All right, let's look at this, if we will. We see a pattern in the New Testament of a bunch of leaders, a plurality of leaders, with the same time, deference to a leader of leaders. So you've got a group of leaders, and with those leaders, you have a leader of leaders. We see this pattern throughout the New Testament, okay? Within the Godhead, Jesus Christ does only his Father's will and speaks only his Father's words, even though he's equal to and united with the Father. John 5.19, John 8.28. And so we see this passed down, trickled down in the leadership in the New Testament. Before he ascended, Jesus appoints Peter as the leader of the disciples. In Jerusalem, Jesus' brother James was clearly seen as the primary leader of that church. Paul asked Timothy and Titus to lead the elders whom they appoint as leaders. And we keep going. You know, in the home, it's supposed to work the same way. A leadership in the home, after which leadership in the church is supposed to be patterned. The blood family, God's family. Husbands and wives are equally God's image bearers. Loved equally by God, but husbands are called to self-sacrificially lead their families. And God then asks us to obey those leaders for their good and for our benefit. He says this to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders, submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this, though, with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so that's what we got. Leaders matter. They matter to God. They matter to Jesus. They matter in the church. Who is a leader? A leader is simply someone people follow because he or she is following Jesus. Paul says it brilliantly in this short little statement, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, he encourages this church in Corinth to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. In other words, as he follows Jesus, he's telling people, come along, I'm just following Jesus. That's the best way I know how to lead. Just come with me as I try to follow him. Join with me in this mission to follow him and to tell others about him. That's a leader. You know, we can all object. I understand this. Look, I am my own leader. All right, we all lead our own lives You can even make the argument, hey, I can follow Jesus because I have my own Bible that I can read for my own self. But God chooses to use leaders to speak timeless words into timely circumstances. It's really nothing new leaders are doing. They're not telling you anything new. They're not encouraging you with anything new. They're only taking the Bible and applying it in timely circumstances. Timeless words, timely service. In fact, you could see this in Joshua. Joshua doesn't tell them anything new, his people, as he begins to lead them. Look at verse 9. Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, Here's how you shall know the living God is among you. 
And then he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. All right, behold, the ark of the Lord is passing before you. This is nothing new. He's already promised them. So I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to drive these people out. And for this whole time, as they've been led to the desert, the ark of the Lord has been leading them. It's nothing new. Until we get to verse 12. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. That's unusual. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. You see what we got here? A new way of reminding you of God's faithfulness. That's all this is. God's still going to drive these people out. He's still going to give you this land. He's still going to go before you in the form of this ark. I'm just going to give you a new reminder. I'm going to give you a fresh way of seeing this truth and seeing his faithfulness. That's going to happen by me parting these waters so that they stand up in this wall of waterness. Look, you can object when a leader says he speaks for God when God has spoken for himself through the Bible. But we must also equally state that God calls his leaders to apply what he has spoken into a particular culture, a particular context, and particular circumstance. And that's why leadership matters. Not only leadership matters, but here's the fun one. God-given authority matters. Look with me in verses 14 through 17. And tell me if you see a man who's been given authority. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. And what happened? The people began to actually pass over. So everything Joshua has told the priests first, then the people comes to pass. He's a real leader. He's a real prophet. God confirms his authority upon Joshua by following through with what Joshua says. And this is a pretty big deal because this is not a fly fishing stream. All right, that Joshua's passing over. All right, this is not river runs through it. You know, Brad Pitt, Robert, you know, Robert Redford, that kind of deal. The drop of elevation from the Jordan, of the Jordan River, from the Sea of Galilee to the north, uh, to the Dead Sea, was immense. It was significant. It was a drop of, of 40 feet per mile, uh, close to the Sea of Galilee at least. And at some fords, it had a depth of up to 12 feet. And the river channel itself was 90 to 100 feet broad. But the river basin was up to a mile wide. And you see that here in this picture. There's the, the actual river channel. You see the river basin here in this aerial shot. And of course, we're told in verse 15 that this is occurring. They're, they're walking through this river during a time when the Jordan overflows its banks. Rushing water, most of which would have gone over these people's heads for a mile. So a true miracle. Adam, which is mentioned here in verse 16, this place, Adam or Adam, has been identified with modern-day Damia, uh, where a confluence between the Jordan and Jabbok rivers exists. and Basically, it's a place where 
they come together and, and these mudslides often occur and have completely actually blocked the Jordan's southward flow. Uh, as recently, actually, as 1927, and at that point for about 20 hours, 1927, it blocked the Jordan's southward flow. The implication here is that a supernatural act confirming God's authority on Joshua occurs either because the waters stopped with no physical help or impediment, or a mudslide occurred supernaturally time when the priest dipped their feet into the water. Either way, it's pretty cool. I think it's cool. I kind of think it's cool in some ways that God would use his world that he created in the natural order. Time. Bam. The priest. I kind of like to imagine it that way. But either way, he's confirming Joshua is my prophet. This is my leader. You can join with him. A new movie came out this past week called The Master. Uh, it stars uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I like a lot, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, who is kind of a, kind of a weird guy, uh, and uh, Amy Adams. And I haven't seen this movie, but it appeals, I think, because it relates to real life. Maybe the plot synopsis, because again, I haven't seen it. After returning from the Second World War, having witnessed many hordes, a charismatic intellectual creates a faith, a religious faith-based organization, in an attempt to provide meaning to his life. He becomes known as the master. His right-hand man, a former drifter, begins to question both the belief system and the master himself as the organization grows and gains a fervent following. It's a brilliant synopsis because we have this interplay between the simultaneous attractiveness bundled with magnetism, charisma, influence of a leader, and the skepticism, even repulsiveness towards those same qualities. But so many of us have experienced, to some degree, the letdown right, and the hurt of such leaders who have used influence, charisma, even God-given authority to hurt people. And I'll tell you, it's happened to me too. I, three out of five persons positioned as key leaders in my life, people got to call me to submit to, turned out to be largely negative experiences. I had that. And so I think the tendency when we encounter authority, even God-given authority, is, ah, yeesh, stay away. E.T. Forsyth, the great Scot, great Scotsman, the early 20th century theologian, made a great point, though. He makes the point that staying away from authority is actually impossible. I love this quote. He says, if within us we find nothing over us, we will succumb to what is around us. If within us we find nothing over us, we will succumb to what is around us. In other words, we all succumb to something. Either we willingly submit to something over us in our lives or we succumb for something from the outside. Anyone who thinks they're purely an individual with complete autonomy is foolish. Regardless, we all submit to authorities in our lives. Let me give you three just really basic examples from real life. A remote control, your web browser, and Apple. All right, these are things people use every day, you likely use. At our house, we have, these, uh, we have all these stations on our TV. It's ridiculous, all right? And, and so we have this remote control that has a special favorites button. 
which you can choose favorites to provide you selected infotainment. By using this button, which I go and I select these favorite channels and spend time doing this, I'm basically saying, look, channels, I'm trusting you. I am trusting you. I am submitting to you stations as my authority for entertainment and enjoyment. All right? I am, I am, I am throwing to the curb every other station but you. You open up your web browser. You start uh, adding bookmarks, right? Bookmarks are favorites on your web browser. It's just another way of putting in the sites, articles, blogs, forums that you consider the authorities on providing you information that you feel like you need. The iPhone 5 was released this week. Anyone get the iPhone 5 yet? Okay, nice. <laughs> also, also honest. We tried, yeah, clearly. <laughs> well, I, okay, so I was reading this fascinating article uh, that I just happened upon this week, surveying people waiting in line to purchase the iPhone 5. I mean, it, just, it surveyed people from uh, Sydney to London to Lisbon. And at one, it asked the question, at one point... At what point did you decide to purchase an iPhone 5? And so some said, well, when I found out it had a sleeker design. Some said when I found out it had better picture quality. But 70% of people said as soon as Apple released the date, it was going to go on sale. <laughs> but that's when I decided. As soon as Apple said it's going on sale this week, that's when I decided. That's all 70% of people needed. Because as an authority said so, they followed. Everyone's, now you might say, well, but Ryan, all those things I choose. I, get to, I have the freedom to choose those authorities. Exactly. That's what I'm preaching about this morning. Is who is a leader that you should choose to join with. Because God's got his hand on him. The New Testament confirms the need for leaders to possess authority. And the dangers of bucking against it. All right, now, I'm not going to spend time on all the verses to talk about you shouldn't, you know, or live a life of just, I hate authority. There's a number of them in the New Testament. The letter to the Corinthians, Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians, is his most vulnerable letter. Why? Because there are these people in the church who are saying, you know, Paul, he's a weak speaker. He looks kind of funny. He looks kind of frail. We have booming voices. We're good speakers. Our voice carries authority. You should listen to us. And they were making headway in the church, and they were teaching things that weren't consistent with the gospel. And so Paul gets vulnerable. This is the most vulnerable letter where he says, I love you guys. I can't believe I'm going to talk about this, but I'm going to. But, but God's given me authority to love you guys, but he's given me authority. So here's some of the things he says about his authority as the leader of this church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 10, 8, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for uh, building you up and not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So he gives him this authority to build these people up. But he still has to say it. Look, uh, yeah, God did give me authority. 2 Corinthians 10, 13, But we won't boast beyond our limits, but we'll only boast with regard to the area of influence God has assigned us to reach even you. Influence is a word here very closely related to authority. God has given Paul, as a leader of this church, influence in the church. He goes on to say, 2 Corinthians 10, 15 through 18, we do not boast beyond 
uh, limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you will be greatly enlarged. So we might preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Influence. Without boasting, I've worked in another area of influence. But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord, for it is not the one whom commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So he freely admits here, look, I didn't choose this, but God has called me to exercise influence. 2 Corinthians 13.10, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority God has given me, again, for the building up, not for the tearing down. Same theme here. Because the great leaders don't use their authority to tear down people or great missions people are on. They used to build up. But nevertheless, it is authority. Now, there are all kinds of questions that come along with this that I can't address this morning because I've got to keep this relatively short. Why can authority in and of itself be beneficial and life-giving? Right? When should you start to question authority? Great question. At what point should you remove yourself from under an authority? All important questions, but this morning, the question we see here, I think, in Joshua 3 that comes out of this is, what's a sign that God has put someone in authority and they're worth joining in the first place. All right? That's where we're going to finish up with this morning. Why God's sign matters. God's sign matters. God confirms his hand is upon Joshua with two signs. Of course, we heard about the uh, water world sign, right? Uh, This great miracle. But also the ark. Look at verse 3 here in chapter 3. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, the Ark represented the character of God. God's people had and were given no image to worship. In fact, They're commanded not to make an image because God is spirit. Don't make an image like the people around you. God's not made of stone. He's not made of watercolors or oil paints and this sort of thing. Although God is spirit, he has character also. The ark was a box with a lid, and it contained God's promises, a symbol of his character, his oath to his people. So this ark represented his promise. His person, I am your God, and I will go with you. That's why you see the language here in Joshua 3, that when he talks about the ark, immediately it's almost followed by the Lord. His people are commanded to keep a distance, as we see here in verse 4. Not so much because of God's holiness, but so that everyone could circle around and get a visual. Right? That as Joshua leads into the promised land, God goes with them. God actually commands it they give space so everyone could see this ark, that they would remember this in their mind the moment they crossed into the promised land. What sign are we given? What sign are we given today that God is with a particular leader? Not only for today, uh, but for tomorrow. For one day when God calls you to be a leader, and you think about what's important. Is it as obvious as a giant box or as miraculous as the wall of water? I mean, is it something just incredibly powerful? You know, God did say that in these times, He would, according to Joel 2, 
pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Is that the sign that God is with a particular leader? Many have claimed that. This power. What about the magnetism, the giftedness, the charisma? Is that the sign? These are all things people associate with this being someone worth following. There are two especially telling places in the Gospels where we are told about a visible sign that's given. This is fascinating, all right? Follow me with this here. Matthew 16. All right, this is an exact moment where this happens. All right, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, in other words, the religious leaders, came to test Jesus. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Right, so the religious leaders, no doubt, had mixed intentions at best, just here an aside. But like the rest of this generation, they want, they want a sign to know if God had rested his authority upon Jesus as their leader. All right, so here's, they test him. They ask him to show them a sign. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. In other words, he's saying, you're a good meteorologist, just with your eyes. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. A generation that always wants a sign, that's desperate, I must have a new sign. Listen to this. No sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. He stops talking there, and he leaves. What? The sign of Jonah? I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. I mean, is that just Jesus being kind of Confucius-like and given like this weird, maybe a symbolism of something old? The sign of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to Nineveh, a despised city that God calls Jonah to go to and to preach to. This is in the Old Testament. Jonah refuses, hops on a ship going the opposite direction, runs away from this mission. God has none of that. And so eventually Jonah gets thrown overboard. God's doing. He eventually goes down into the belly of a great fish, left for dead. That's what happens when you're eaten by a whale. But God raises him out of this death, this sure death. And then gets spit up on the shore, and then he's like, okay, God, that's the sign. I'm supposed to go to Nineveh and preach. So he does, and reluctantly. The reason Jesus uses this example is because it's a visual for how he is going to rescue people. The sign that Jesus is a leader is that he will go to the cross and die for people. Be left for dead, buried as Jonah was, and then confirm that his death has the power to rescue when, like Jonah, God raises him out from a tomb. Jesus' death which saves us, and how the resurrection confirms that he is the leader who can save us. And, and just give you one more interesting scripture that confirms this. Luke chapter 2. You find this in a strange place. Jesus is being dedicated all right, at the temple. He, he's just a, a, a baby, a child. Okay, And as his father and mother bring him to the temple and they're introduced to this priest who's been longing to see Jesus, longing to see the Messiah. It says his father and his, his mother marveled at what was said about him in Luke chapter 2. 
And Simeon the priest blessed him and said to Mary his mother, check this out, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and he's appointed for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This deserves its own sermon. We could be wrong here. But the sign here, a sign that's opposed, is the cross. It's why Mary will grieve. A sword will pierce through her soul also. It's a sign that reveals people's hearts, and in some cases, hearts that are opposed. Because the cross is for some people a fragrance. It's life. It's a new opportunity. But for for most people, it's a stench. People hate the cross. Because the cross opposes being accepted through accomplishment. I'm a good person. Cross says, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. Well, wait a minute, but I can find my identity through being liked by other people. No, you're not going to find that, says the cross. Cross opposes all of this, saying, you are more corrupt and helpless than you ever dared believe, but more loved than you ever dared hope. I said last week. People don't, They get caught up on the first part. Oh, man, I am more corrupt, kind of stinky than I ever thought. They don't hear the second part, but you're more loved than you ever hoped. The cross, specifically the cross-centered life and ministry, serves as God's sign of approval upon any leader. It's why we hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5, this. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, Except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message, my preaching, were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Notice, most leaders use wise and persuasive words. Paul says, I give up on that. I give up. My life is about the cross. I'm not, I can't be that kind of leader. Check out also... 2 Corinthians 12. Remember earlier we looked at this vulnerable moment where Paul is compelled to defend his authority. He genuinely believes he has lived up to that authority except for one key weakness in his life. And he tries to get rid of that weakness. To be a leader like Jesus. Perfect. But, he's told, to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of all these things he experienced, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming too elated, in other words, too prideful. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be taken from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest on me. For Christ's sake, then... I am content, or some translations say, I delight even in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, even while the cross is specifically mentioned, grace is. God's grace. God's grace is God's love made active ultimately through Jesus' saving work on the cross. You could put it this way. My work is sufficient for you, Paul. My work on the cross is sufficient for you. It's enough. 
You don't have to be perfect. You notice what these two passages I just read had in common. The cross, weakness, and power. That's just a weird combination, isn't it? One of the things, though, I most appreciate about leaders, especially people who preach and teach in churches, is vulnerability. Don't you like that? And I think one of the reasons we like this when someone says, you know what, I messed up. Or you know what, I'm not really good at this. You know what, I don't love my wife the way I should. This last week I really, you know, the reason I think we like this is it makes us feel better about ourselves. But the reason we should like this even more is that it's a result of our leader living a cross-centered life. That even though he strives for holiness, he confesses he falls short. And even still recognizes, look, Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient for me. It's enough. Indeed, knowing that he'd rather it be all God and very little if at all him, that kind of leader can boast about weakness. Boast about weaknesses. I mean, who does that? Who says, I'm selfish? I can be self-indulgent. I can at times be controlling or I can get anxious about things. I, I worry too much. I, who boasts about those things? A leader for Jesus does. Who says before rallying the truth, I'm coming in weakness. I'm coming in fear. I'm coming with much trembling. Only the one who recognizes that through preaching and living out the cross, it's God and not me. And the other thing we notice is God unleashes tremendous power through preaching and living the cross. It's not the person then, it's not the leader who who seeks God's power for power itself. But that happens with a lot of leaders, right? You know, uh, more miracles, I want more power, I want to... Oftentimes that's code for, I want the power. But it's the person who seeks the cross. The leader who goes to the cross every day, humbles himself, admits fault, humbly drags himself to the cross to receive forgiveness, through whom God unleashes tremendous power through the Holy Spirit. God gives that person authority in the way they live, in the way they speak, and the way they lead. Look for, seek out, hunt down, join with that kind of leader. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning, um, Jesus, that you are our chief shepherd, our leader of leaders. You showed us that, though, primarily by going to the cross, by dying to every right that you have, every privilege that you deserved. We thank you for that. Jesus, we figure out there might be new people here, Lord, and, and I hate to be self-referential, but even now, Lord, is, is this a, a leader in a church I want to be a part of, Lord? I pray that our church, and I myself, would be very cross-centered, Lord. That I would be quick to admit fault, admit weakness, drag myself every day to the cross, and then preach it with my life. But Father, we ask that too for when we maybe leave here, or maybe when God calls us to be a leader. Help us to begin living that kind of life. That the sign people would see in our lives that maybe we're worth joining up with would be the cross. Not our giftedness.
per se, our charisma or our magnetism or anything else, but that Jesus Christ crucified is at the center of our lives. And may we have wisdom and discernment to follow such a leader as well. In Jesus' name, amen.